Hi, and thanks for listening to the Big Time Talker podcast. We're on the Blog Talk Radio Network worldwide. I'm Burke Allen, and the program is service of our friends at SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you're a speaker or a meeting planner, you can get together on SpeakerMatch.com and find one another. SpeakerMatch.com, sponsor of the program. And today we talk to author Carl L. Stewart. Carl has written several books that... uh, weave their way in and out of the factual world. It's called historical fiction. It's a fascinating genre. There are millions of people that love to read it, but Carl has a pretty unique backstory of his own. He uh, is a United States Army Special Forces vet during the Vietnam era, graduated from UW-Madison back in the early 70s with a double major in political science and history, taught public school for many, many years, and returned to his first love writing after retirement. And so we're talking with Carl L. Stewart today on the program. Carl, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Burke. Let's rewind all the way back to your military career. Uh, You went in the Army during a time when the country was in quite a bit of strife, much like uh, it is today. Tell me about your time in the military. Well, that was a – it's different. Sometimes I have trouble with uh, people understanding exactly what happened because at the time – I was attending the University of Wisconsin down in Madison, and in 1966, it was everything was a buzz because the Vietnam War was becoming our war, and everybody was trying. Young men were trying to avoid the draft. So, my family had a very different background coming out of West Virginia, and my father's story and his father's story, and I had a lot of friends who were not eligible for a college deferment. They were just, I guess you'd call them townies. And uh, that graded on me that just because I was in school, I had an out. And other young men didn't have that out. And guilt and one thing or another got on me. So I ended up dropping out of the university and joining, which was not something a lot of people were doing in 1966. Sure. So I joined. Yeah. And uh, I joined, I think, as. We went south to basic training. I sat in the train and wondered what was I doing, you know, at this particular point. Everybody else on the train was drafted. And I went through basic, and I was so afraid of having to repeat basic that I ended up uh, becoming the soldier of the cycle. I got this big chunk of wood and a plaque, and they made a big deal out of it. And after that, I went through jump school, went through my MOS training in communications, then uh, I thought, well, one thing I'll never be able to do is be accepted into the Green Berets. In jump school, I'd seen some Green Berets recruiting, and I thought, wow, those are some tough dudes. I'll never be able to make that, and uh, maybe I could. So I signed up for that and went through their training and was accepted and earned my sergeant stripes. So that's how I got into the Green Berets. It wasn't a gung-ho sort of a thing it was i don't know if i could ever do that a challenge i guess more than anything else so then you find yourselves in the green berets and it's during vietnam you're you're a vietnam era soldier in the back of your mind were you thinking geez at any time i could get you know sent overseas because i'm sure everywhere around you uh guys and ladies were being deployed to vietnam well, guys were being deployed. At that time, women weren't deployed yet. As a matter of fact, I trained for Vietnam. 
I we had mock-up villages we trained in. I took Vietnamese language, which I can still remember a few phrases of. I was all scoped and ready to go to the fifth special forces. And then uh, a funny thing happened at Fort Bragg as I was completing my training. A lot of veterans were ret- returning. Uh, Green Berets coming back, and their attitude was real clear. Don't go. They're killing us. Don't do this. If you have a chance, go somewhere else, but don't go there. And the main person they were blaming was the President Lyndon Johnson, who had never served in the military and had basically set the Green Berets up over there as uh, target practice for the NVA. So the the best advice I got from the returning Green Berets was don't go. And so when I got down to, after I finished and was waiting for my assignment, I had decided I wasn't going to go. To, this is funny. Here's a Green Beret that was not going to go to Vietnam. And I thought, well, they'll probably send me to the stockade. So I went down and they, on the day they asked, uh, well, I all set to go. I says, no, I'm not going to go to Vietnam. And then, uh, Officer there said, well, where are you going to go? That took me for a, threw me for a loop because that was a question I hadn't expected. I expected him to come down on me like gangbusters. Sure. And instead, yeah, and instead he asked me, where do you want to go? And I had no plan B. (laughs) So I said, well, I don't know. What have you got? That sort of thing. And he said, well, we have a, he said, can you, his first thing he said was, can you speak Spanish? And I said, no, but I can speak Latin or make it pass. I had four years of Latin in high school. I had a classical education, three years of German, two and a half years of Greek. So I said, I I know Spanish comes from Latin. I could probably pick it up pretty quickly. And he said, well, go for it then. Here we got this Spanish-speaking team that needs a combo operator, and you qualify handily. So I, that's how I was assigned to the 7th Special Forces, which is responsible for the Western Hemisphere, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. And I had visions of lounging on beaches and, <laughs> and all that. So it didn't quite work out that way. Yeah, I would imagine that, uh, that, that probably it wasn't exactly what you had in mind. Um, however, I, I think that uh, as someone who hasn't served, and my father or my uncle served, I, I find it interesting that you had any say-so whatsoever in where you wound up. Was that because you were a Green Beret and, at that point? Or how is it that you were able to sort of draw your line in the sand and not uh, go over there when, of course, so many other guys were drafted and were sent uh, and didn't want to go. That's a good question. And I've answered that before with other people in my family um, and some friends who had no say so at all. I think it was two things. I thought about this and I think it was two things that happened to coincide one and maybe three, maybe the man was just sympathetic to me. He was a green beret too. And he had probably spent his time and he probably knew the same things I knew. But secondly, I think they needed, uh, I ended up being assigned to an A-team, a 12-man A-team, operational A-team, that had uh, has two commo sergeants, two operations in intel, two weapons, two engineers, two demos. There's just, there's uh, 12 men, 
and there are five skills and doubled on the skills. So you could split the A-team and still operate as a split A-team. So I was on a team. I was, they needed two combo operators. One team had lost both communication sergeants, and they were trying to rebuild it. So there was a slot open. They needed a filling, and if you're ever familiar with the Army, they really don't care what you want. It's the body they want. So I slid into that. Right place at the right time. Carl L. Stewart is our guest today. He's uh, an award-winning author, several books on uh, headline books, and we're talking to him about his early career as a Green Beret, which is an incredible honor. And and I wonder, as you look back on that young 20-something uh, Carl Stewart, if, if you realized what an incredible honor it was, or is that something that comes to you later in life uh, as you look back on your life and you go, wow, you know, I actually did that as a young man. I was a Green Beret. Burke, the Special Forces, being accepted into Special Forces, at the time was the biggest, most marvelous thing that had ever happened to me, ever. And in my life, probably it's just below my marriage to my wife and the birth of my children. But I mean, it's very, and it was at the time. Uh, at the time, it was the biggest challenge I could imagine ever doing, and I was accepted in. And when you're on an A-team, you have to be accepted. They can assign you to an A-team. But if the veterans, if the other men on that A-team don't, accept you you can be voted off you're just sent off to somewhere else and they'll reassign you you don't stay where you're not wanted and you're not wanted if you're not competent so i knew i had a skill i knew i was respected i knew these other men had my back i had theirs and we'd done we would have done anything for each other that's that's what happened and being accepted into that sort of an atmosphere as a young man was revelation. It was just completely eye-opening to me. Carl Stewart, our guest today, we're talking about his time as uh, Special Forces uh, during the Vietnam era. You did not ever, during that entire conflict, you never went to Vietnam, correct? Not, no, never. <laughs> we did our training in Fort Bragg. That's where the 7th Special Forces home base was. Uh, jungle training down in Panama, Fort Stewart and places like that down in the jungle. And um, we trained wherever and uh, did whatever we were asked to do in the Caribbean, Central America and South America. That's where we worked. That was our bailiwick. And when my time was up and they asked me to reenlist, I said, no, nah, I don't think so. And came back to the university and finished up there. What year did you uh, did you leave the military, Carl? 1969, in at 66 and out in 69. It was uh, one tour, one um, enlistment period. And then when it came time to re-enlist, that's when I thought, now nah, I've, I've done my part. I've done this, and now I want to know if I could actually fit back into civilian society because in 1969, the campuses were a mess. And, that, you know, it was really, that was another challenge. Now, when you talk about them being a mess, I, you know, I, I read often about the the civil unrest that was happening in the late '60s in, in America, and 
Of course, we've dealt with that an awful lot in recent days all across the country after the mm-hmm. uh, the killing of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Do you see yep. any parallels between what life was like in the late 60s in America and what's happening today? Um, on an organizational level, as far as protests go, I do. And it's this, there's legitimate, very legitimate grievance. And there was, like I said, when I was signed up, I had signed up to go to Vietnam and took the language and did the training and all that sort of thing. Did not go. When I came back to university, I also walked in protest marches with students uh, who were protesting the Vietnam War, even though I was a returning Green Beret. It may sound weird, but that's just the way my personal life went. I understand that, but I also knew on campus when there would be 10,000 people marching up State Street towards the Capitol, there were bands of organizers. There had to be to keep things kind of under control. But there were also organizations, for example, one that I had made contact with Students for Democratic Society, or SDS, whose sole aim was to mess things up, to trash cop cars, to get people's heads hit with clubs so that they could stir up more dissent, more chaos, more mess. And those people you wanted to have very little to do with. And I see, and now I see there's actually starting to get some coverage of that. That's not new. I think that as they strip that away, you'll find the vast majority of the people just heartbroken about this and protesting and with the deep grievances. But at the same time, there are, and I don't even want to call them outsiders. That has connotations that that have meaning all of their own. But there are bands of ideologically committed people who are maybe perhaps anarchists or uh, Al-Qaeda or whoever they are, I read about in the paper this morning, they were talking about that. So that doesn't surprise me one bit. As a matter of fact, I would be surprised if there weren't. Carl L. Stewart is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, brought to you by Speaker Match, and he's uh, an award-winning author, several historical fiction novels that we want to talk about. But uh, we're spending a little time now on his upbringing in the 1960s because there certainly are parallels between what was happening then and what's happening this summer here in, in the United States. And and that makes uh, a guy who's a little bit younger than, than you are, Carl, it makes me wonder, you know, how did we get here? Because 50 years ago, when you were a kid in your 20s and right out of the military and, and in college, it, it it doesn't seem like we've made an awful lot of forward progress. And maybe I'm wrong, but, I, you know, I, I'd love the your vantage point because you were right there in the middle of all this, as you said, 50 years ago, marching with protesters then. So how did we get here today? Actually, Burke, I believe we have made tremendous progress as a nation. Um, it's stunning. This was the life I knew back then. Turn around and look at the world around you. In the time when I got out of the service, there were no black people on television. I think the remarkable one was a Bill Cosby with somebody called Salt and Pepper. He played a cop. And it was unusual. It was remarked on that there was a black person on TV. 
And there certainly were none in commercials. Can you imagine that nowadays? The idea that there would ever be a black president? Absurd. Um, there were, I think we have, we have made an awful lot of progress, but that doesn't, I mean, when you have to go from zero to a hundred and you're at 70, that's a lot of progress, but there's still 30 out there that has to get covered. Uh, and I think that's where we are. I think there's residue, there's bad apples. I saw cops kneeling in the street, taking a knee with the protesters down here in Milwaukee in uh, across the country there are that could never have happened back in the 60s the cops wouldn't have not for the vietnam <laughs> they wouldn't have done that <laughs> they had the clubs ready and tear gas and that's the way it was i do think we've in other words i think we have made progress i think it's being aggravated there's people are hurting for this person and for a whole situation that hasn't changed enough or fast enough, but it has changed. Young people can't, they don't have that historical perspective. They can't see. I went to a football game at the University of Wisconsin when I was single with a black girl, took her on a date to a football game. This was back in the 60s. That was phenomenal. It, my friend said, don't do it. I couldn't bring her home to my parents. Mm -hmm. It was a situation that was very, very different than the way it is right now. Our guest is Carl L. Stewart. We're talking about his books. We're talking about his background as a Green Beret and the turmoil he saw as a 1960s college student after returning from the military during the Vietnam era. Hey, Carl, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about uh, mm -hmm. about your writing. After uh, the military, you went into teaching and you taught high school, yeah. uh, I understand, for, for the better part of, gosh, what, 30 years there? Yes. Yes, that's right. Um I didn't ever intend on being a teacher. I'd had no inclination that way. I was doing an entirely other work, but my wife's schedule and mine, she was a teacher. And if you know a, a teacher's schedule, it's holidays are off. You work early in the morning and you're done about four in the afternoon. Well, I was managing a clothing store. Our best business days were holidays, long hours. And I'd close up often at night, 10, 11 o'clock before I would get home. We'd communicate by notes. I got into teaching in order to heal our marriage. And I found out I could do it. And I enjoyed it. And it provided a steady income. And I thought in my foolish, naive mind that, gee, being a teacher, that'll be easy. And I'll have summers off. And then I can write because I had some ideas back then I wanted to write about. Well, that never happened. Talk to anything. Summers aren't off. There's classes required. There's work to be done. There's preparation to be. And then, of course, there's kids coming. Families are happening. Life goes on. So the result was everything got shoved aside until I was in my 50s and had a medical event occur, a brain hemorrhage, uh, uh, an aneurysm in my brain. And that drove me out of teaching because it destroyed my short-term memory. But my long-term memory was fine, untouched. And I was standing at the window here, staring at this tundra one winter day, whining about it as I 
had was prone to do. And my wife said, well, why don't you do something? And I said, well, what can I do? I can't work. I can't do anything. She says, well, what do you really love to do? And I said, well, I always wanted to write. She says, well, then write, damn it. I'm gone all day working. You're here with the dog. Right. There's the computer. So I said, that's when I started. It was at her urging that uh, I decided to actually take it serious and look forward and move forward. And that's what I did. That's how I started writing. And then I wrote for a number of years. I was writing different papers and essays and short stories and I was putting them in manila folders and shoving them in a file cabinet. And after years of that, she came in to my office one day and said, Carl, what are you doing with all those? I said, well, I'm just putting them in the file. She said, well, don't you think somebody might want to read them? And honestly, that thought hadn't occurred to me. I thought, really? I don't think so. But at her urging, I did send out some manuscripts to various publishers and headline books picked me up and said they liked it. And so I've been working with them since then. And your very first book was, uh, was a Western sort of set in that, that Zane Gray, Louis L'Amour tradition. Uh, my father mm-hmm. was a huge fan of, of both of those writers and, um, it interweaves some family legends in your side with, with obviously some fictional work. You had to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you had to, to pull the story together. The book is called The Legend of Seabird, The Last Long Drive, and that was the first book. And, and mm-hmm. uh, as you look back on it now, are, are you amazed that you actually got that out? Because many people tell me, you know, geez, just getting the first book done is a Herculean task. Uh, if it were easy, everyone would be an author. So you must look back on that with some pride. I do. I, and the day that I was accepted that uh, headline books, that was I just short-circuited the agony that went through that. I had picked 24 companies to send my pieces out to, and I did it so unprofessionally. I didn't ask them what they wanted. I didn't look at who their uh, editors were or their a- a- agents or anything. I just sent them totally unsolicited pieces of my work. I had, I chose 24, 23 rejected him. It was the 24th one. And when I went out to the mailbox and picked up the acceptance form, I almost jumped in the air. I was, I was so pleased, so surprised, but it wasn't a first thing. I mean, I had, so many rejections when my wife would say, where are you going? I said, I'm going out to the mailbox to get my daily slap in the face, which is what <laughs> it felt like. But it did work out. And Seabird was a person I wanted to start with. Seabird was the main character, the protagonist. I had an idea of writing a three-book Western set, a trilogy. And Seabird would be the protagonist, the hero in all of them. And it's based, as you said, on a real person. Seabird was a Choctaw Indian born in Oklahoma and as a young man drifted down into Texas and became a cattle wrangler, a drover, worked driving cattle up the Chisholm Trail in the late 1800s. And then when the cattle, the Chisholm Trail closed in 1885 or 84 it was, 85, because the train first got to Waco in 84 across the Mississippi, and so they didn't have to send their 
cattle all the way north. They could just put them on a train. And then he became a rodeo star in the early American rodeo for years and years. Now, I know his story because he was my great-grandfather. Amazing. Uh, yeah. And in our family, there were so many stories about him. And he was a very quiet, humble man. Um, he died before I was 10 years old. But he was the man. I mean, the pictures of him on a bucking horse or the stories of him out west had to always be told by Granny, his wife. And because uh, he wouldn't talk much about it. He just would get up and go work in his shop. And so when he passed away, that's when I found he was an Indian. And it hurt me because I figured I probably said things that hurt his feelings. And I loved that old man more than anybody else I knew and admired him. And so when I started writing, it sort of was natural that I gravitated to his character. He was a small man, a quiet man, a Christian man, didn't smoke, didn't use tobacco, and he had one drink. Once a year, he'd slam down some whiskey at his birthday party, and that was it. But the stories about him were wonderful. They were almost magic to a small kid. So that's where I, that's where I started with. Oh, what a great, uh, a great inspiration as a young guy. And and uh, to be able to go back and, and uh, pay homage to, to your great-grandfather by writing books about him. And, and you weaved him into your second story, uh, Devil's Backbone. Tell us about that book. Well, that eventually he couldn't stay out west in Texas, Oklahoma, that area. He drifted east. He had a twin brother named C. Wright. See, his name C. Bird isn't S-E-A, it's S-E-E bird. And if he, he, when he spelled it, he always spelled it as one word, seabird. But if you ask him what his initials were, he'd always say SB. So when I started writing about him, I decided because it's a fictional take on a real guy that I would separate the word. So it's in the title, it's seabird, but he had a twin brother, C. Wright, hmm. and they were separated somehow. So C. Wright drifted east. And the rumor was Seabird drifted east to find him from Texas, and he got to West Virginia, down in Huntington at the dock, and that's where he met a girl from the mountains. Her name was Sally, and she was a niece, actually a young widow. Uh, she had a little baby girl. Her husband was a sheriff in Logan County, which you might have heard about, and he uh, was killed and left her with a little baby girl. And she was working in Huntington, doing whatever she had to do to stay alive. And some of it was quite respectable, some less so. Right. And uh, met Seabird there. And they hit it off. And they hit it off for the rest of their lives. Another 50, 60 year marriage. But um, that involved him in her family because her clan were the Hatfields. She was the niece of a guy named Devil Ants. Of the Hatfields and McCoys, the famous feud, sure. Yeah, and uh, Uncle Devil Ants, as she always called him, she just admired him to no end. She would tell me stories about how Uncle Devil Ants taught her to ride and shoot and how she had to defend him when he was taking a nap with a shotgun at the window and all these sorts of things about him. So he became kind of a living character to me, too. 
which I always thought the name was the, the weirdest name I ever heard of. And I said, well, why did he have a name like Devil Ants? And she said, well, he was a shy man, Junior. He was a shy man. And that gave him space. Nobody called him by his real name except his wife, Levisy. Everybody else, he wanted to call Devil Ant because, I mean, if your name is Anderson Hatfield, for crying out loud, and people are out to kill you, which would you be more likely to go after, a guy named Andy Hatfield or a fellow named Devil Ants? Uh, point well I, taken. Yeah, I would give Devil Ants a wide berth. <laughs> and I, I think that's what what that was all about. So I used that. Um, she would tell me stories of the feud when she was young. Granny would. And I say, well, Granny, what happened? And she said, well, nothing much. Old folks died. The babies were birthed. And life went on. Sometimes for five, six, ten years, nothing would happen much. And uh, when I started writing, of course, you can't do that, Burke. You can't say, well, after this incident, nothing much happened for ten years. Babies were born. You can't do it that way. So you have to compress. You have to fictionalize. You have to condensed time and compressed characters. But that's where that came from. It was from family again. And uh, so of my stories, that's one my wife likes the most of the Westerns because it's as much Sally's story, my granny, as it is his story. She was a remarkable woman for her time. And I named my daughter after her. Carl L. Stewart is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. We're talking about his writing career and how he was able to weave uh, weave these incredible stories from his grandparents, who by all accounts were very colorful folks, into this historical fiction. And one of the things that that I think is interesting about your books, and I wish we had time to talk about all of them, is is there is a a common thread that you weave through them, starting all the Mm -hmm. way back in in the Wild West and then on to the early 1900s uh, with their interactions with the Hatfields and McCoys and and then, uh, you know, on into the Seventh Cruise, your next book, and, and World War II. Tell us about that common thread through all of these books. There are several common threads. The number one, I would say, is Seabird is in every single book. Of the six published novels, he's in every one. The first three Westerns, he is the protagonist. In The Seventh Cruise, which is a World War II novel of naval combat, in both the Atlantic and the Pacific, based on actual interviews I did with veterans, he's there also. He's there as a grandfather of a young sailor, trying to advise this West Virginia hillbilly boy who wants to go off and fight the Japanese on the reality of killing and war. And, of course, the boy doesn't take his advice. Younger generations never do, it seems. Then... um, in the next two books, Up Harvey's Creek and Fare Thee Well Harvey's Creek, he's there as a great-grandfather. Those stories are told by a young boy, about 12. And he's in those. In the first one, as a great-grandfather, and as the second one, more as a memory, because he passed away. But he's in every one, and you were right in the first part where you said it's kind of an homage to him. He was the best man I ever knew, and I do write sort of as a tribute to him, although I try not to make it mawkish or heavy-handed. 
you know, you do touch Other on threads. one very serious topic in, in the Up Harvest yeah. Creek that, that I wanted to ask you about because it, it's pulled from your own family history, from, from your father, mm-hmm. and, and also something that, that you dealt with uh, as a, a former Green Beret, and that is post-traumatic stress syndrome. And, and, and you do have some pretty powerful things to say about that. And, and I wonder if, if you're okay with talking about that, about your own experience with PTSD. Yes, uh, I wouldn't have been if we'd had this conversation a couple of years ago, but I've had practice. Um, I've, I've spoken on this, and it came by accident, the ability to open up on this. Um, when my girls were little, now they're middle-aged women. They're 40, 35 years old and have children of their own in high school. But when they were little, and they would, one of my daughters used to get a kick out of coming into my bedroom at night and standing at the door and just whispering my name and watching me fly out of bed, take up a ready position in the corner of the room. And she'd run giggling off. I would have nightmares. My wife would have to wake me and she'd be bruised. This got serious. She suggested I get mental help. And I thought, no, I can handle this. I know what's going on. I can handle this but I never ever would talk to her about it. And I started writing the seventh cruise, which was based on my father's experiences in world war two. And there was a man ravaged by PTSD. It destroyed his life. He was a young man, a hero, bright, everything. And he came back and within 14 years, his marriage disintegrated. He lost two jobs. Couldn't care. Couldn't hold a job alcohol. He lost his wife. My mother divorced him. He lost his family. He lost his house. Mm. He lost, worst of all, he lost his self-respect. He lost everything. I mean, he was to the bottom. And when he was an old man and I engaged with him and we were interviewing for that book, I could identify him. I, I could start understanding why he slept with the lights on all the time. Uh, I uh, could understand why he never took us to a swimming pool because he couldn't stand the screaming and the echoes and the water. I started connecting with my father again as he was an older man, not because I was terribly sympathetic towards him, but because I could empathize. And so when I started writing the book and I started writing my notes down off the tapes, I found when I would get up and I'd written it well, that I felt better. This wasn't something I'd studied or taken a class on. I felt better having written, just having written about it. And I started blending some of my experiences with my father's in the writing. And I came to an awareness just a couple of years ago after I wrote Up Harvey's Creek and Fare Thee Well, Harvey's Creek, which deal a lot with my father's PTSD and its effect on the family at that time, that the writing, the process of writing was healing. There were knots in me that I had felt for years, tensions, whatever you want to call them, that I had just taken and expected I'm going to die with this. There's nothing I can do about it. Started loosening up. And I, if I could write about it, then I could talk about it. So I started talking a little bit more with my wife. And that is the process I developed 
uh, a talk that I do, and I've given uh, a couple, a dozen, two dozen times, I'm not even sure how many times, called Healing Through Storytelling. And I, I really do believe, not for everybody, it's not a silver bullet, but I really do believe if I can coach or encourage someone who's suffering from PTSD to write about it, and it could be notes, it could be a poem, it could be a short story, it could be an essay, and it could be a novel. Write it down. It may be helpful. And right now, Bert, this is really critically important. We have 22 veterans every day taking their lives, mm. committing suicide. 22 a day. Yeah. While we've been talking, some veteran couldn't take it anymore and ended his life. And in my family, a nephew two weeks ago, I think you referred to earlier, my sister's son uh, killed himself. He shot himself in the head in Milwaukee um, through this. I think it was a combination of his experiences and this COVID-19 isolation. And he had gotten in a huge argument with his fiance. And then he, I, I'm sure he felt grief, remorse, shame. And he went out into a parking lot and ended it. This stuff COVID-19, PTSD, this isn't, these aren't toys. This isn't gamesmanship. This is real stuff. And if you can help, if you could find a way out, at least to ease some of the tension, some of the stress. And if, it, if writing helps, then write. And if talking helps, talk. If you need a phone call, there are lifeline phones, toll free, where people will talk to you. But you got to do something. You can't just take it to the grave. You can, but that grave may be sooner than you want it to be. Carl L. Stewart, our guest today, uh, we're talking about PTSD and and how it not only is, is shown up uh, very prominently in his books, but also in his, his own life. Uh, in these books, weave together parts of uh, his life and his ancestors' life uh, into these incredible historical fiction books that uh, now are award-winning books, which is has got to make you smile after all those rejection letters. Uh, now your your books are winning <laughs> awards all over the country, all over the world, and and I'd like to to leave folks with this: if if they've always thought, you know, I I'd love to write a book, I'd love to do that, but I just don't know how. Uh, what advice would you give them? Because you didn't give up. Oh, to start. Where do you start? I always wanted to write. That's one thing. You have to want to because you'll you'll find that your friendliest button on the keyboard is the delete button. It's so nice and handy because <laughs> so many times I've written things and then I've reread it and thought, no, that's not right. And just hit that delete and it's all gone. But you keep writing. You just keep, keep at it. You, you have stories. I have never been to a meeting or a talk, a book talk, where I have not met people. They have stories and they, they should tell them. Their kids should know. Their grandkids should know. If nothing else, if they're tormented, if they have problems, writing can help ease a lot of that. And I don't, I don't have a specific place to start. There are authors who say, and there are advisors who say, write every day. 
doesn't matter, write 2,000 words a day or whatever. I've never done that. If I did that, I would write garbage all the time. It would just be like monkeys at a typewriter. So I discipline myself. I research a subject for a half a year without writing anything. I spend time going online looking for people or experts or people who have been through it, whatever, and collect and collect. I have, then I have a pile after about six months of notes. Then after about six months of collecting and thinking and organizing, then I put my fingers on the keyboard and start working. Carl, know what you're doing. He's uh, written a whole bunch of books and and has led a very colorful life from, uh, you know, a young man growing up in the, the mountains of West Virginia, going away to college and of all things, volunteering for the military in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, he took that and became a Green Beret, left the service, and uh, moved back home, got a, a double major in college, taught high school for many, many years, and now has written, of all things, a series of award-winning novels. That, sir, is a life well-lived, and I appreciate you sharing part of it with us today. I have enjoyed this immensely, Burke. Thank you very much for inviting me, Board. It's my pleasure. You can find all of Carl L. Stewart's books at Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com, wherever books are sold. Hey, thank you for listening today to the Big Time Talker podcast, a service of SpeakerMatch.com. Stay safe, stay healthy, love somebody. Thanks for listening. Bye.